Welcome to another sermon podcast from All Souls Anglican Church, Cherry Hill, New Jersey. Thanks for joining us as we study God's Word together. These weekly sermons are part of the teaching ministry of our church. Have your Bible ready as we begin this week's sermon. And stay tuned when we finish at the end to find out more about us. Now, this is the ninth sermon in our sermon series of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And the Apostle Paul, by various means, has set out in doxology and prayer and in the dark description of our previous lives, what is the goal of the gospel? The goal of the gospel is what we gained in salvation, forgiveness and freedom in a transformed self in the Lord Jesus Christ. But forgiveness and freedom in a transformed self is not the only goal. It is not even the ultimate goal. But we are saved for an ultimate reason. And the reason is this. We are saved for God's glory and for our enjoyment of him fully and eternally. Enjoyment, joy in him. Now, it may seem strange to us to consider this. We could even ask ourselves, do we even consider it at all? Have our struggles in this world dulled our sense of God's ultimate reason? Now, Paul understands this too, doesn't he? Because he's already made this clear in his letter to the Ephesians. Consider three examples that we've already studied. First, if you look back now to chapter 1, to verses 20 through 23, you'll notice how he describes the extent to which Christ is exalted above all things. Exalted. In other words, nothing can hinder him. Next, look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 where we saw how God also raised us up from spiritual death to a triumphant life in Christ. Therefore, nothing hinders our Savior from joyously existing in love towards us, and nothing hinders us from joyously existing in love towards him. And that fullness of love, without spot or wrinkle before him. This is where Paul concludes in verse 7, doesn't he? God's goal is so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. How? In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, do you see how there's this progression, isn't there? How this exaltation is not just for a bare display of power on the part of God, but it's a relational glory. We are in Jesus. We are not who we were. In other words, the Apostle Paul, understanding how we can be dulled by the trials of this age, 
wants to make sure that we always keep in our sights the glory of the author of salvation. He is the one whom we have come to know and enjoy. His mercy is rich. His love is great. His kindness is immeasurably gracious. All this for his elected people, whom he plucked like kindling from the burning. But this strong emphasis that we've studied in what Paul has written so far on this loving, sovereign work of God does pose a question. And the Apostle Paul, ever pastoral, wants to keep that great grammar of the gospel before us. So he answers this possible question. What am I talking about? Well, here it is. If salvation begins in God's eternal election and is put into effect by what the Lord Jesus has done, not by us, so that salvation is by grace, where then does our activity fit in? In other words, if God saves us sovereignly, graciously, without our contribution, is there no need for faith? We could take it even further. Is there no need for conversion, for repentance? This is where Paul zeroes in now at the beginning of verse 8. You can see it there, can't you? He begins the section with the tiny little word, for. This should tip us off. He's going to give us an explanation. Paul writes, yes, we are saved by God's sovereign grace. But this grace is received in Christ through faith. Right, you say. Well, there's our follow-up question, right? The default follow-up question is anchored in the default follow-up position of our hearts. But then surely I do contribute something to my salvation. I have faith. And Paul's answer is here. No, this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Therefore, Paul tells us, faith is our response. But it is not our contribution. I want to say that again. Faith is our response, not our contribution. So how does Paul navigate faith like this? Well, to answer that question, we must determine three elements. First, we have to do a close reading of the text. We need to decide what this is, In this is not your doing. Next, we must examine what Paul means by whom. Who believes? And what is the consequence in terms of boasting and the object of boasting? Then we have to grasp what Paul understands by God's handiwork in us. And that last one is the most significant because it opens a great door 
of the Apostle Paul in what will follow in the rest of his letter. So let's go first then to the reference point. I'm going to reread now the first sentence in verses 8 through 9a. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. I remember reading that verse for the first time so many years ago when I was 16 years old and first came to faith in Jesus Christ. Growing up in an area that was really shaped by Roman Catholicism, this verse came as a healing balm to me. And it has been that way ever since. Perhaps it's been that way for you too. But I must confess, it's been a long time since I sat down and looked at it very carefully and did a bit of work on the grammar. What does that this mean? Is, 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 what, what's all that about? So I had to remember my grammar from school and remember that a demonstrative pronoun like this agrees with its antecedent in person and number. Now the pronoun that Paul uses here in the original is a neuter one, and it can be there in singular or plural. But all the three possible antecedents are not neuter, they're all feminine. Two of them are plural, and one is singular. So which one is he talking about when he says, this is not your own doing? There are four options. It can be faith. It could be salvation, that is, you have been saved. It can be grace. That's three. The fourth could mean, he means it all, being saved by grace through faith. So of the four, which one could it be? Now, I want to suggest to you that he's actually thinking of the whole, being saved by grace through faith. And the reason why is because he had the option of using the demonstrative pronoun in the feminine, but he didn't. He used the neuter. That could be taken either in the singular or the plural. The original Greek wouldn't be clear necessarily here. Now, we know Paul can be precise, and this time he's being precisely vague. He wants us to keep the entire process in mind. So we also can find out, looking at other places, does he ever do this again, this same kind of thing? Well, he does. This refers to grace or salvation or faith when it's referred to as a gift. It's a redundancy in the language, a signal for him. In Romans 3, he does it like this. We are justified by his grace as a gift. In Ephesians, in verse 5, by grace you have been saved. In other words, by grace you have been saved through faith. If it's by grace, it's a gift. So why even use the word gift? He wants to put the emphasis there. So we find the same thing here. By grace, you have been saved through faith. Yes, faith is active, 
But faith itself is a work of grace. It's not your own doing. In other words, it's not the cause. It's not the switch that turns the lights on. So if it's not a cause, what do we call it? And this is where the precision matters. Now, I would suggest that what he's arguing here is that faith is a necessary circumstance as far as you and I are concerned, because, in fact, faith is a gift of God. God's grace, salvation, and faith are all his gift. It's not affected by our work, but it's our response, a necessary circumstance. You see, if it were down to us, then we would be able to boast. And that's something we cannot ever do. So we understand that first sentence in Ephesians in this way. It suggests that faith is given to us by God. And as a necessary circumstance, as far as we're concerned. But God is the cause as far as God's concerned. Now, are we there yet? Well, maybe not exactly. So that's why we have to ask another question to clarify things a little further. Who believes? That's the second thing. Now, I may be saying something really obvious to you, but if you think about it, it does make sense. God does not do the believing for you. You are the one who believes. And it's good to recall at this point what Paul wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. This is what he wrote. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Now, did you hear how Paul wrote here? Faith is granted. In other words, it's gifted in grace to you and me. Just as suffering is gifted in grace to you and me. We suffer. But this gift of suffering means you and I, not God, experiences the suffering. In the same way, God gives you and me faith. But he does not do the believing. We do. The true offer of the gospel calls for a necessary circumstance, a response through faith. That's exactly what we find when we hear the message of the Lord Jesus from the beginning of Mark's gospel. We're told he went out preaching the gospel, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We, through faith, trust the word of Christ. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. We therefore respond, a necessary circumstance. We repent. We believe what he says. Faith is our activity, but it is not in us. It's not our possession by nature to believe. Faith needs to be effected in us by God. And in that sense, it is his gift. 
Therefore, by our union with Christ, there is an order, a logical order. God predestines, atones, calls, has an effectual call on us. We are born again and we respond in faith. Not an call, I hear the gospel and I believe and therefore God chooses me. Now there is a difference there, isn't there? The second one, a call, believe, chosen. You see how we do the work but in what Scripture testifies, and what we see here in Ephesians, is that God does all this work, and we respond. The other option, God does all the work, but he's dependent upon your work of faith to make the final connection. Placing faith before election, repentance, regeneration, and so on, makes it causal. You see, so you must watch out for that. The genius of God's plan of salvation is that he devised a means by which we are both actively engaged in faith and yet contribute nothing towards salvation. <clears throat> it's a free gift to which our faith adds nothing. Salvation is all and always will be of grace. It never originates in me, in what I am by nature or is dependent upon my work. It comes from God. Therefore, no one can boast about it. And that's the key, boasting. Because the default mode of the human heart will inevitably reposition itself in terms of its pride. I am more than another. I am more religious. I am more faithful, and so on. So if you are the source of salvation, if it comes from in you by nature, you'll twist that into boasting, won't you? I certainly would, for that is the default nature of things. But Paul goes to great lengths to point out that there is no boasting. That the only boasting a believer can appropriately make in connection with salvation is what? The believer must boast in God for what he has done. For those who are saved. That's why Paul wrote in his letter that God included him, his reader, the Ephesians, and you and me among his people by his grace to the praise of his glory. You see, if a believer does not understand that his or her salvation is entirely God's doing, with no contribution from themselves, then what happens? God will fail to receive from them the glory that is rightfully his, won't they? But Paul has another piece to set in place now. Okay, we've sorted out faith. It's not a work, a necessary circumstance, a response of mine, purely by God's grace. So what about works? This is where being God's handiwork comes in. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Now, you should have one clause in there that should jump out at you, right? The contrast is brought full circle here, isn't it? At the start of chapter 2, he tells us how he once walked along the easy path of worldly wickedness, drawn by the devil, utterly corrupted from within in trespass, and drifting towards death and certain judgment. But now, Paul writes, we are God's handiwork, where his masterpiece, his worksmanship, created for good works, walking a different path entirely. That walking is going on there, isn't it? We walked along in darkness. Now we walk along as God's handiwork. Because we cannot be indifferent to holiness. That's why God, Paul writes this way. Notice what he says. Because we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see the balance here? Faith is a gift, but we exercise it. Good works do not save, but good works bring him glory. Therefore, we must begin to walk in the good works which God prepared beforehand. Or we will demonstrate by this evidence, when we lack such things, that we still walk the easy path of the world, the devil, and our flesh. Now this phrase, we walk, we've looked at already once. Now let's revisit it. This idea that good works constitute something in which we walk is fascinating because what does it do? It suggests a new lifestyle. It suggests new creation. And this is the key. This is the hinge point of this first part of Ephesians. To move our thinking as believers from our former condition as children of wrath to our current condition as new creation. We can read the parallel ideas, the redundancy Paul favors when we compare verses 7 and 10. Verse 7, so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, so that he might exhibit in our lives his workmanship. You see, Paul has much more to write about in this letter, of the ways in which God displays his glory in you and me as believers in the church. The church is, as it were, a working model of his power and grace. So we must understand here, at this entry point, and he'll do so again in verse 11, how important it is to see that God's grace has transformed us fundamentally. Because what Paul now goes on to explain is that it affects every small detail of your life, your thought, your action, fundamentally. And so it would seem providentially for the times. And if you've been reading through Ephesians once a week, as I asked, you know what's coming next, don't you? Providentially, Paul begins with what? 
he shows us how the blood of Christ has achieved racial reconciliation in verses 11 to 22 that follow. Now consider this, my friends. Heaven may be the final showroom, but here on earth, God is already showing what he can do. The church triumphant is an art gallery. It is where God displays the reflections of his glory in portraiture, in which the family of God is seen in countless faces who together show his infinite glory. My dear friends, the divine potter still has the clay in his hands. The time for the final exhibition hasn't come yet, but it will one day. That all that God has done that may be invisible to the naked eye will become visible for all to see. The question is, do we believe this? Do we trust Christ has achieved us and walk within it? Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about us by going to our website, allsoulsnj.org. There, you can support our mission by making a one-time donation or starting a podcast member subscription by clicking the Support the Show link under the Contact Us tab. You can also support us in prayer by clicking the Email Newsletter tab at the top. All Souls Anglican Church. Simple Church ancient truth, real people, new life.